Indigenous perspectives and voices have historically been underrepresented and misrepresented in Canadian news. Journalist Emily Gilpin says the source of the problem is a lack of diversity and accountability within Canadian newsrooms. The more I looked with intention at journalism schools and newsrooms across the country, the more I saw how much harm mainstream media could and has caused, exploiting people, perpetuating trauma porn, repeating harmful stereotypes, and writing inaccurate depictions of people and places that they claim to want to cover. She realized that in order for there to be better representation of Indigenous stories, journalism as a whole needs to change. Welcome to Let's Talk About the Internet, a conversation about the future of the Internet in Canada. This podcast is part of a partnership between Meta and The Walrus. I'm your host, Mohit Rajans. Emily Gilpin is a journalist and the former managing editor of News. She joins us to talk about how reporters can decolonize Canadian journalism by building deeper relationships in the newsroom and with the communities they report on. But first, she discussed these issues at the Walrus Talks at Home, News and Platforms. Let's have a listen to that talk. Hello, everybody. I am Emily Gilpin, and I'm the managing editor of Indigenous. I'm a mixed person, and I go by she, her pronouns. I'm Métis, a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation and Filipina through my father, and third and fourth generation settler with Irish, Scottish, and British ancestry on my mother's side. I grew up in southwestern Ontario and have lived and traveled a little bit of everywhere for over a decade. I participated in a graduate course in journalism at Concordia University in 2016, where it became glaringly apparent to me that the state of journalism in North America was in need of tender love and care. It was a time when people were saying journalism as we knew it was dying, that there were no more jobs for journalists, and the more that I learned about the state of the industry and the culture of newsrooms across North America, the more I felt, so be it, down with the old and in with the new, or in with the old old, which I'll elaborate on. Due to my family history and lived experiences, as well as my education and training on anti-oppression and anti-racism, I wasn't surprised that all of my professors were white, mostly male, and that I was being taught colonial journalism with a low ethical bar for the communities that people wanted to work with. Walking through the press room in Canada's parliament building a few years later while reporting on a historic apology delivered to the Tethkoti nation for the wrongful hanging of six of their war chiefs, I peered at photos of Canada's founding fathers of journalism, old white men that looked, thought, and talked nothing like me. The more I looked with intention at journalism schools and newsrooms across the country, the more I saw how much harm mainstream media could and has caused exploiting people, perpetuating trauma porn, repeating harmful stereotypes, and writing inaccurate depictions of people and places that they claim to want to cover. Seeing Red, a heavily researched book by Carmen Robertson and Mark Anderson, does a fantastic job of outlining how Canada's history of English-speaking newspapers were used to outline and support a colonial agenda. Newspapers used as an arm of the state, written by one demographic of people. All of us here today know the importance of newspapers in defining reality, outlining truth, documenting history. So I started to look more deeply at whose voices were missing or severely misrepresented and how, if I was going to get involved in this media machine, was I going to be a part of changing that? I started giving workshops at Concordia to other journalism students and communication staff, as well as other newsrooms over the years, providing tools and techniques on how to avoid oppressive words and ideologies, decenter the colonial gaze on colonial legal systems, beliefs, and perspectives, and perpetuating false narrative and homogenous narratives of diverse peoples. 
We explored how indigenous storytelling, news sharing, and oral traditions are still alive and well and can provide ethical standards of practice for any storyteller today. I called these workshops decolonizing journalism. I spoke up in my class and corrected my professors at times, walked out during a class on the TRC that only showcased Stephen Harper's court-mandated apology and offered no critical insight into the attempted genocide of Indigenous peoples or forced assimilation policies that trickled down through my family. I felt shunned and shamed at times for challenging the standard of practice and was told by multiple so-called journalism experts that I wouldn't get a job because I wasn't objective enough. And yet I was the only person from my graduate cohort to get a job right out of the gate. I interned with the Taiyi for a summer, focusing mostly on a series of profiles of urban Indigenous women, and then took a job with National Observer, leading their First Nations Forward series dedicated to stories of strength and success in Indigenous communities across BC. I hustled to try and get out Indigenous voices, be a vehicle for people to speak for themselves for once, rather than be spoken about by people with completely different life experiences, worldviews, and cultural contexts. I stayed in Brazil in 2019 after my sister's wedding where I did some freelance reporting, but a lot of witnessing and listening inspired by grassroots media and activism across Central and South America. I started a Facebook Live series as soon as the pandemic took off last year, hearing from Indigenous scholars, activists, elders, masters, leaders, and community members, and then was offered this fantastic role with Indigenews to be the managing editor and help support a new wave of Indigenous journalists. Indigenous was created through a partnership through APTN and the discourse. The goal of the partnership was to provide journalism that serves and is driven by what local communities say they want and to experiment with new business models for digital local news that contributes to the long-term sustainability of independent Indigenous news in Canada. Discourse Media, already an impact-driven independent media platform, planted the seeds for Indigenous, attaining funding through the local journalism initiative. We hired three journalists in the Okanagan and four across Vancouver Island, some part-time and, and some full. It has been quite a year. We've been out here raising the ethical bar on how to report on Indigenous stories, training people with little to no journalism experience rather than saying there's not enough Indigenous journalists to hire or no one applied. We set up a mini journalism boot camp in school, brought in seasoned Indigenous journalists while pumping out as many stories as we could, giving meat to the bones of the saying representation matters. We ran a series on reproductive health last year that included an investigation into the practice of birth alerts and internal documents that revealed legal experts warned MCFD that the practice was unconstitutional, triggering pressure on the industry that has been likened to the modern to the residential school system. As a team of Indigenous mothers, aunties, community members who wear many hats, we've cried, laughed and fought together. We created a new newsroom culture at Indigenous, a nurturing and supportive environment that values the well-being of our employees rather than glamorizing capitalism and patriarchy. Indigenous claims to be a media outlet that you can trust. Due to the colonial history of newspapers in Canada, it's not a surprise that trust has needed to be built up again. And we are doing just that. We practice trauma-informed, anti-oppressive journalism, self-locating on certain topics, working with our sources on care plans, we're a place where community members can see themselves reflected and represented accurately. We're filling in gaps of coverage, sharing voices of people on the ground. We lost a large part of our LGI funding when contracts weren't renewed and weren't able to keep on our whole team. But while we've downsized, we've continued on and gotten creative. We consistently discuss and address our intentions. Is it to get likes, views and awards? Or are we here to tell the truth, to show up when it matters, to amplify indigenous voices in the ecosystems and relatives that we're closely tied to, to change the harmful narratives that have been caked into this country's colonial conscience, 
to document the many faces of this unfolding story and to make a difference in our communities on the ground. We continue to find ways to generate steady revenue, to grow, adapt, and evolve, and hopefully have a presence in communities across the country as we continue to grow. We've only been here for over a year. I wonder where we're going to go from here. So check out Indigenous if you haven't already. Subscribe, support, and follow on our journey. I'm happy to share more about some of the opportunities we've had to collaborate with aligned organizations. Um, journalism isn't going anywhere. We have come far from where we've been, but there is still work to do to create a higher standard of accuracy and accountability in the press. I have said for the past years that the media is in a stage of metamorphosis and we have an opportunity to change and strengthen the culture of the industry in order to support its sustainability. And I'm proud and grateful to be a part of these changing tides. Hi, hi, thank you. That's Emily Gilpin speaking at the Walrus Talks at Home, News and Platforms. She joins me now to talk more about decolonizing journalism. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Yes, thanks for having me. So tell me, as a freelance journalist, what are you seeing online today when it comes to reporting and discussing matters of public interest? Where are we when it comes to fostering a healthy public sphere? I see a lot of positive change, which I'm excited about from being totally an observer of the media, a participant, to learning about how media is formed in journalism school, to being a journalist myself. I see that there's been a metamorphosis of journalism in Canada, which is exciting and necessary. But I also see a lot of division and sometimes inaccuracies or perhaps different ideologies kind of clashing without a general understanding. I think sometimes the news can feel really overwhelming for people and provoke anxiety and confusion. So I still see that as being a part of the media landscape, but I do see change at the same time. Before we go too much further into your current experiences, can you walk me through a little bit about what it was like when you were growing up, what your exposure to media was and what made you feel like it was important? Well, I grew up hearing a lot of stories. So for me, it was more about storytelling. Like I think of myself as being in the work of storytelling as opposed to so much journalism or media. So I grew up hearing a lot of stories from family members. My sister and I loved to read. And I think it was more so in university that I really developed my critical analysis of what I was seeing and hearing around me. And if that was reflecting my own lived experience or the experiences of those around me, people that I cared about and started to see a lot of inaccuracies. And then, of course, doing a journalism program, actually learning about the culture of media and how is it formed and where are its roots and where does it come from? Media is not different than other places where there has been a colonial history and a developed colonial culture that hasn't served all people equitably. I started to really see some issues and how journalism was being carried out and impacting people and wanting to be a part of that change that was happening as well. There's a lot of distrust online for mainstream media and there's distrust for newsrooms, for companies, because people don't even know who owns what. Where are we right now when it comes to at least being able to rebuild that public trust so that the younger version of you growing up is still as interested? Interested and also, like you said, being able to trust what you're reading is knowing that it's accurate. It needs to be interesting and it needs to be accurate as storytellers, as media makers, as people who are really documenting history. 
and giving people something to read in and believe in in a different angle. We need to be really accurate in our work. But I think where we're at is that we need to answer those questions that you just posed. We need to know what companies are involved, where the money is coming from. I wanted to know that as well. When I started working with National Observer, when I did an internship with CBC or was working with Indigenous, like where are these funds coming from? How does the nature of media work in Canada? So for people to start asking those questions and being educated in how they consume news is definitely important. But then also newsrooms have a responsibility now, always have, but perhaps now, whether it's the truth and reconciliations, recommendations for more accountability, as we continue to learn more about the culture of Canada, I think we have a responsibility to build that trust because it's not that trust was lost, especially when it comes to Indigenous peoples. There was never trust, right? The media started out with a colonial agenda for having an agenda that is aligned with genocidal intentions. There's no trust So we're in the process of building trust for sure because of some of the harm that's been done. And how do you do that? You practice relationship-based reporting, trauma-informed reporting, and you diversify newsrooms. And it sounds like what you're referring to has been a big part of your experience so far. You're the former managing editor of Indigenous and spent the year working with the team to build out the newsroom there. Can you talk to me about the Indigenous approach and how it differs from traditional Canadian newsrooms? Indigenous was comprised of everyone who was a part of it. But when we really first got started in 2020, at the end of the summer there, we had about seven reporters. And that's where the culture of the newsroom came from. It was mostly mixed Indigenous women, non-binary folks. And we met multiple times a week, always talking about these concepts itself, and then also doing the work, getting the stories out there but really, really digging into the ethic of our work, really digging into the culture of our newsroom. I learned a lot from the Indigenous reporters, from the Indigenous team. Kelsey Kalana, for example, she's been a really big leader in teaching us how to be trauma-informed in our work and follow place-based specific protocol and in respecting the communities that we're working with and really having care plans there for people when we're covering traumatic events or topics. It was a culture of a newsroom unlike any that I've experienced before. It was a very nurturing culture as well. We held ourselves to a really high standard of getting the stories out there. So timeliness was definitely still a big factor of our work, but not at the expense of anybody. Really being accountable to the people that we were working with. And that's how you ensure that your stories are accurate. You mentioned in your talk about the need for trauma-informed reporting. What is trauma-informed reporting? What does it look like? The way that I'm using and understanding trauma-informed is like, if you think about a psychologist, you want to make sure that a psychologist is trauma-informed because if they're asking questions about a traumatic event and they're doing it in a way that they're not being sensitive to a person's experience, they might not realize that there are physiological things that could happen when a person has experienced trauma that will impact their answer, it will impact their experience in that actual conversation. So it's understanding a little bit about how trauma is held in our bodies, how trauma impacts people, what events are traumatic or could be considered traumatic. As bodies have been uncovered, on former sites of so-called residential schools, that's a very traumatizing subject for a lot of survivors and families. So having that in our awareness, how does that impact the questions that we're asking? 
or the prep conversations that we're having beforehand to make sure, you know, hey, by the way, do you have a support there for you? What's your plan for afterwards? Checking in after the interviews. Journalists haven't had to do that. You don't learn that in school unless you're in specific programs. You don't learn how to make sure that your reporting is being trauma-informed so you're not causing more harm because there's been a lot of extractive journalism, a lot of let me fly in, grab these stories, leave in the middle of a crisis or a traumatic event, whether it's an oil spill or a suicide crisis or what have you. We believe that we have a responsibility not to cause harm to people. Emily, what responsibility do newsrooms have to their sources when stories are published online and make their way through social media? Yeah, at Indigenous, we talked a lot about intention. What moment are we in right now? How could this story impact people? How might that change the way that things are framed or the headlines that we put out? We really try not to practice trauma porn or putting out really sensational clickbait headlines. Of course, you want people to click on and read your stories, but not at the risk of re-traumatizing or harming people. So having those conversations right at the beginning, before you conduct your interviews, before you go about your story, I think is an important part. Some journalists, especially maybe old school journalists, might kind of cringe at this. And you don't think about energy when you're talking about your stories, but we do. We actually have conversations around, how is it going to feel to read this online? How is it going to feel to click on it? Where are people at right now with how they consume the news? We talk about that. People are really oversaturated, right? There's a lot that's going on. We're still living through a pandemic. Restrictions are changing all the time. Some people haven't been able to see their family. There has been traumatizing events that have been in the news consistently. So being aware of that and then putting our stories out there, how is that going to impact people? So we talk about really trying to practice strength-based reporting, like telling also strength stories and solution stories, not just focusing on the problems, but looking at people who are trying to fix things in their communities and really giving them a platform as well. We all need to continue to also engage with interesting and engaging and uplifting information, not just the problems. You posted on Twitter a thread about the myth of objectivity in journalism. Can you speak a little bit more about that thread and why people want to know more about it as well? I think objectivity is a really important goal to strive towards in our work. The way that I think about objectivity in my work is I look to the way that my mom mediated conflict with my sister and I growing up. And from what I've learned about mediation techniques, it's a lot about listening and repeating back what you hear. Oh, I heard you say this. I heard you say this rather than defending what someone else is saying. But often objectivity, the word and the concept is used in journalism or in newsrooms to shield from accountability. I was chatting with Candace Callison, who's a tall tan professor, excellent journalist, and she was talking about how objectivity is the Western scientific notion that a view from nowhere is possible, right? That you can just arrive and have this objective view from nowhere and see the situation but we've all been educated by different education systems. We all have biases. We all have lived experiences that shape the way that we think. So we're applying our biases no matter what. That's important to keep in our awareness in our work. I also think that we talk a lot about self-location at Indigenous. So self-locating yourself. Hey, I'm this person. I myself am a mixed person. I'm Métis. I'm Filipina on my dad's side. And then I'm Scottish, Irish, English descent, third, fourth generation settler on my mom's side. I grew up in London, Ontario. I've been living a little bit everywhere for the last 10 or so years. 
And that all shapes my experiences of the way that I report, the way that I see things and understand things. So I think it's really challenging objectivity if it's being used to say, oh, I can't be accountable to that relationship or I can't engage in that because I need to remain outside. So I just think that we should be aware of the way that that can be used to really shield from accountability in locating ourselves and locating our biases and the way that we report. You've spoken about developing more relational ways of working versus a more extractive way of working. Can you expand on that more? When we talk about relationship-based reporting, it's about showing up to community events, showing up to have conversations with people, really investing time into building relationships and hearing from people from a variety of sources, getting a, you know, a sense if you're reporting on a community or with a community, for example, who are you talking to? What is their reputation? What is their position in the community culturally or politically? Hear from other community members about your sources to understand who it is that you're talking to. Make sure that you're spending enough time to get a cultural perspective on things and maybe check back in, whether you read over your interview or your story or you send parts. I do think that that's an undervalued part of the work because beyond fact checking, we also need to do cultural checking. Like, did I hear you correctly there or did I consciously add my own bias? checking back in with people again afterwards. I think that that's an important part as well, rather than, like I said, just extracting stories and putting it out there and never having a conversation, even checking in to see if the person that you interviewed read the story or received a copy of it. It's so interesting because, you know, I can think of how many of these problems are symptomatic of bigger problems within covering stories from multiple generations now and stories of the immigrant experiences. And it's amazing to hear your perspective and sort of at least start to realize, wow, we've let repetitive behavior just become the rule in so many things that are obviously not the way to treat storytelling. I come from a culture that is very much about storytelling, and I'm very curious about what's inspiring you. What are you learning from emerging Indigenous journalists and storytellers? What's going on that's keeping you motivated? Well, I have to bring myself to where I actually am physically right now, because in 2020, I was living here, which is Lençóis, Bahia, Brazil, the northeast of Brazil. And when I arrived after my sister's wedding in 2019, the Amazon was on fire. Then the pandemic broke out in 2020. And so I was seeing a lot of Brazilian media as well, social media in particular. And I was so inspired by especially Indigenous-led and independent media in Brazil and across Central South America. Like I was watching people get interviews out every day, engaging around topics critically, really getting out community voices from the ground, showing a lot of support outside of mainstream media as well. So I was really inspired by that. I actually launched an interview series called First Nations Forward with National Observer at the time. Just started calling all of these Indigenous artists, masters, chiefs, political leaders, community members that I knew and started asking them about different things. Let's just get out community voices as much as possible. And from other Indigenous reporters, like you said, I see a lot of leadership I see a lot of people stepping up and holding newsrooms to a higher accountability. I see a lot of really talented photographers and filmmakers that are emerging as well. And I think that all storytellers and media makers can really work together. I think our stories need to be told in the best way possible. 
me as somebody who consumes the news, like I want to see high resolution, beautiful photos. I want to see videos whenever possible. I think the younger generation, the attention span is different, right? We're saturated in different ways with social media. So we need to make sure that we're telling interesting, engaging stories, keeping people's attention, but then also really being accurate and getting at the truth of the matter, not grazing over, giving people the benefit to be able to have a critical analysis of what's going on. When we look back at how Canadian newsrooms tell Indigenous stories, how do you think future generations will view the era we're currently in? I mean, at the risk of sounding short-sighted, because I've learned that we don't just look at things within the last 10, 20, or 100 years. It's a much bigger timeline than that. But looking at this area that we're in now, COVID-19 pandemic, the uncoverings of bodies from residential school sites has been historic in the last few years in Canada. I think we'll look at as a point of change. I really do believe that we're at this point of change. There's so much going on. There's so much turbulence. People are trying really hard to be well. And we're in the information age. There's a lot of information available online. There's a lot there for us to dig into. So I think that this is a, a, a critical moment of change. I know for for years to come, you'll be able to look back at this time and be able to celebrate the energy that you're able to give to the industry. And I definitely want to thank you for joining us today. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for having me and this great conversation. It really does extend out of just talking about media and journalism and looking at how each of us are upholding our responsibilities, how each of us are practicing whatever protocol is there for us to make sure that we're well and that we're engaged and that we're conscious of what we're doing and how it is a part of the bigger picture. Thanks, Mohit. Emily Gilpin is a freelance journalist and the former managing editor of Indigen News. You can find out more about her work by following her on Twitter. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About the Internet, a podcast for Meta produced by the Walrus Lab. I'm your host, Mohit Rogens. Thank you to our producers, Nikki Manfredi and Jason Herterick, and our audio editor, Michael Allen, who helped put together this episode. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and share it with a friend.